Good afternoon, everyone. Let's turn to 1 Peter, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading here in verse 14. Peter writes, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It doesn't say if you're reproached for getting drunk or stealing a car, if you're reproached for the name of Christ. That's a little bit different because you're doing good. You're reproached for the name of Christ, uh, then don't let that uh, throw you off. It's going to be hard sometime, but you can certainly take that. Uh, he, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, if you really have to go through trials and tests and even persecution, which we all will, frankly, if we're really close to God, we will get persecution as a Christian. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So that's not going to be easy to glorify God and say, Father, I know that this is going to drive me closer to, to you. It'll bring me on my knees more, being thrown in jail or beat up and having to be healed or even a hospital or something. Uh, you know, that's not going to be fun stuff. But we can know that it will bring us closer together as a church and individually closer to God. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. God is judging us even now. He is testing us continually. He does not want us to be in His everlasting kingdom arguing and fussing and fighting one another. You know, He doesn't want that. And we cannot have that. And, and watering things down and compromising and so forth. He doesn't want that kind of a family. So He's going to be judging us now. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Where will they appear if you're not really close to God? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So, brethren, we do need to try to get as close to God as we can possibly get in our mind, in our heart, that is that part of our mind, that's our conscience, the thing that makes us way, the way we are, the things that impels us forward, and in our body, our actions, every, every possible way to give our whole being into God's hands. We really got to do that with all of our hearts. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, if you would. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord... And brethren, I think most of you know that Paul wrote this while he was literally in prison. He was in Rome with a ball and chain apparently soldered between his ankles and a Roman soldier guarding him, perhaps with a sword or a spear. He was not in a dungeon on this occasion. He was writing at that time from 59 to 61 from his own hired house in Rome. But he was a prisoner, a civil, a civil prisoner. Uh, not a or political prisoner, we would call it today. He wasn't yet regarded as a criminal. He was regarded as a criminal on his second imprisonment in Rome, where at the end of that he was apparently beheaded, as you know. But he was in Rome when he wrote this. So he says, I'm a prisoner. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you're called. Here he was writing from prison. Say, carry on, do the work, live the right way. He had a lot of courage, this man with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
we in God's church are to have a unity of spirit. That doesn't mean that we will all think exactly the same thoughts, but we will more and more reflect Christ in everything that we think and everything that we say and the words that come out of our mouths and everything that we do. We will try to reflect Jesus Christ and we will all agree, must all agree on all the basic doctrines certainly and the basic big approaches to God. We're to have that. We're endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit to have that same attitude of total surrender to live by every word of God and to let Christ live His life within us, the same life He did live 1,900 years ago. That is the unity of the Spirit for which we should strive in the bond of peace, not picking at one another. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you're called, and one hope of your calling. And brethren, I taught over 2,000 Ambassador College students over a period of about 36 years of teaching, and it really hurts me sometimes. I mean sincerely, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, that he grieved for his brethren, the fellow Jews who were not converted. I really do. I've done it many times. Of the three or four greatest griefs I've ever had in my life, that's one of them. The fact that those students out there that I taught and I don't want to take the total blame. I kid about that. They heard Mr. Armstrong, and most of them had some few classes under him. They had classes under Ted Armstrong. They had classes under Al Pertoon. They had classes under under uh, uh, Herman Hay. Some of them also for a while had classes under three or four other men. I was not their only teacher, even in theology. But I was certainly one of the major Bible teachers there for a long time. And I grieve. There's so many people have just left us and gone back into the world. They're just out there. People that I knew, that I loved, and that I had concern for. And I taught the same thing back then uh, as I do today. And Mr. and Mrs. Wayne Piler sitting over there, I think they'd be glad to testify. You were in the classes within the 1960s, I think. 68. Early 70s, 68. So way back then, we're going back about 35 years now. And even back in the 1950s why I was teaching the same thing, and I did not water it down. I was very, very strong, sometimes even stronger than I am today. But those students, of course, it's their responsibility. I know that, but that hurts. And they've gone off into worldly churches. Some of them have gone off into various branches of what we call the Church of God or Church of God fellowships. Some are decent. There are two or three that are fairly good, decent, I would call them, nice people and this and that. Uh, and others are really kind of uh, very negative in that way they treat people and the way they do things. And I'm very sorry that anyone would be there. Very few of my students are with the very worst of the group. I'm grateful of that. But they've gone off in different ways. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. Now we talk about the Catholic faith, the Jewish faith, the Muslim faith. It means that in that sense, you know, not that you have one act of faith, but one basic belief in God, one basic approach to God. There is one basic approach to God. And if we all had that straight, there would not be 318 Church of God fellowships. There would be one as there was under Peter and Paul. Peter and Paul were not in different churches. They were in the same church, preached freely in each other's churches, worked together. They did have a little set up, set to once or twice. Paul had to correct Peter to his face, and Peter accepted it. Peter accepted it, and later talked about our beloved brother Paul. 
So uh, they were growing, they were mutually correcting and helping and encouraging one another. They were all in one church, one God and one Father, one faith. And that one God is above all, through all, and in you all. We should work toward that. We should have that one faith in our own lives, brethren. We should pray fervently that God would bring more and more of God's people together into one church, one body, one faith. And if there's something we're doing wrong, let's hear about it. I mean that literally, not to get you to picking at me or picking at personalities. That's not the point. But some basic teaching we have wrong, I want to change it. And most of you who know me well know I will. If someone tells us that's clear in the Bible we should wear black socks, we will wear black socks or black hats or whatever we need to do. And we want to have that attitude. And he gave, he's talking about, about Jesus Christ ascending and then descending. Verse 11, Christ gave some to be apostles some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith. We're to have that one basic approach to God and the knowledge, you see, that basic knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're to grow that way. But the ministry is to help all of you grow that way. And that's a challenge to us, brethren. It's a challenge to all of our ministry that we want to and we need to. His bride made himself, made herself ready, it says there in Revelation 19, verse 7. And Christ is ready to marry the church. We're to prepare a people for God. You are those people. I've got to help prepare you. And Mr. Bardot does, and Mr. Apartheid, and Mr. Bryce and Mr. Ames, and all our other ministers, to prepare a people for God. And we want you to be like God. We want you really to reflect God from the inside out. Not just conform, not just conform outwardly, but from the inside out to be the people of God. To grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. Yes, we've had false preachers come into the church. And many hundreds of them came in and around the church of God right at the end of the apostolic age. And they took over the name of Christianity. They stamped the name Christian on the outside of paganism. And of course, that's a horrible thing. They were under the influence of Satan the devil. Many of them back there understood it perhaps more than even their modern followers do because the modern followers just kind of go along. That's what they grow up in. They don't realize it. But there were wicked men back there that started this whole thing. And the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. Not speaking the truth in love, or but speaking the truth in love, excuse me. That's what we ought to be doing. May grow up in all things to him who is the head, Christ. We're to grow up to be like Christ in every way we possibly can and truly reflect Jesus Christ. We've got to really, really work on that, brethren. And make it something that happens, as I say, from the inside out. I was talking to some of our ministers the other day, and I think it was just yesterday or the day before, and I mentioned how that many of the leading men in the church, you know, uh, even ministers and evangelists, had all this knowledge, but they just fell away. And you look at the list of them back uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and it's really sad. They had various political ambitions and so on. I was mentioning how over in Britain, I used to think of the three colleges, how, the, how Brick and Wood was the most righteous college. 
and uh, because Pasadena was beginning to be filled with the liberal scholars, whom I will not name, but they call themselves scholars. And Big Sandy was kind of a playboy college to a certain degree because of the leadership there and uh, a certain influence of someone who often came over from Pasadena. And they were kind of watered down in certain ways. I see one or two nodding, and they know what I mean. That was not toward the end when you were there, but earlier it was regarded that way. And Brickett Wood was regarded as Mr. Herbert Armstrong's college because he spent more time there than he did in the other campuses. Although he was in Pasadena more, he didn't teach very much and he was there. You know, all the big executive duties hit, hit, hit him. He would get back from a trip and then he'd be involved in meetings and problems and situations and he taught very little. Whereas in Brickett Wood, it was a college only half or one-third or fourth the size of Pasadena, depending on what year you're talking about. And he spent a lot more time with the faculty personally and with the students and even taught classes more regularly. And it was more conservative outwardly because the British tend to be more conservative, and he did, and he was there. But right after we closed Brickett Wood, I myself, and I'm, you know, I've been through a lot of stuff, and I don't get surprised with bad things happening because I've seen it so many times over the decades, but the vast majority of the leadership left. They left the church. Our cook left the church. Our doctor, medical doctor, left the church. The director of personal of the mail processing department left the church. And a lot of our teachers left the church. And two of the leading men, a little bit later, soon after I left, at the end of being deputy chancellor, uh, they left the church and got off at first into kind of a Pentecostalism and so on. And uh, I was a little bit astonished, not totally astonished, but I began to realize the church really grew over there. When I was there helping start the church, it was just four people. And I got it then up to about 10 or 12, and then we had a little campaign and got it up to 22, 21 or 22, turned it over to Mr. Waterhouse, and he got it up to about 45 in a couple of years. And Mr. Raymond Manair was in for a couple of years as the local pastor in charge of the work in Britain. And then it got on up uh, from about uh, uh, 45 to maybe 60 or something like that. And then the college began. And boy, did it grow. Then we had hundreds of people because lots of them were being hired and their families heard about it and so on. And that was nice. But what happened when the jobs were no longer there? Well, you're sorry about that. We've got to go here and there and somewhere. They weren't really deeply converted. You see, it wasn't from the inside out. They kind of joined the club. They got on the bandwagon because it was a growing enterprise. Now, we're going to hire more people here, and we're going to grow here. And I hope we will. I'm very grateful for that. That'll be exciting. But each one of you, you're sort of pioneers, and even some of you newer brethren that are just starting to attend from the point of view of this local congregation, you're sort of pioneers, and you'll see this happen and then we'll hope that all the rest of the people who come later as we get bigger will be really deeply converted. And we hope that all of us will be deeply converted. We have to constantly examine ourselves or else we could just fall away if things don't go just the way we like. We've got to be sure that it's internalized and we know where Christ is working. We know where the gospel of the kingdom of God is being preached more powerfully. The good news of the coming government of God on this earth. The government of God through Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords based on God's laws, God's whole way of life. We know where that work is being done. We know where the truth is more powerfully preached and so on. If we see that, know that, we must always see that big picture and not let other things turn us aside. If you see some little problem that someone has, those things can cause people to fall away. But we've got to think these things through, brethren, in that way. Are we really one body, one spirit, 
Are we really reflecting Christ? Are we really pulling back from materialism as well? Think about that. We're saturated with materialism in this society. Is our mind and heart being transformed by Jesus Christ living within us so that we're truly living with Him and have Him living within us, not just day by day or year by year, but hour by hour and the way we think and the way we act and the way we, we do and so forth. Here's a clipping I want to read you that uh, I read just a day or two ago from World Magazine. I've mentioned this before. I'm not trying to get you to subscribe, but it is a nice uh, one, one good uh, uh, Protestant magazine. It's called Christianity Today. And Billy Graham is the uh, founder or whatever. And, and uh, they have general news and so forth about the world of so-called Christianity. And then this is another one that's more the better than the others because it has more the world news from a Christian point of view, uh, but more that approach than just general religious news and so on. But it talks about this, uh, it shows a picture of this Muslim carrying something out of this, one of these big museums over there in Baghdad. It says heart problems. And I wonder, I wish I don't have time to read it all, but he shows how the Muslims do and even robbing and stealing in spite of what their own teachings say. This rejection of personal responsibility is at the heart uh, of the moral and political crisis that plagues the Middle East. The looters there in Baghdad that you've read about and seen on television, just robbing in you know, all kinds of places, uh, for the most part were presumably pious Muslims. The women carting off furniture and TV sets were wearing their veils. You <laughs> see, they were, they were, they were very pious Muslims. They had their veils while they were stealing. Uh, Islam teaches that stealing is wrong. Islam tends to end up or set up external controls establishing righteousness, not by converting the heart, but by making it as difficult or as costly as possible for someone to do anything wrong. Christianity, on the other hand, uh, tries to internalize the moral law. Of course, that's part of their problem. See, you may sense that some of you who heard Mr. Armstrong preach. It's not the moral law. It's the spiritual law of God. He never calls it a moral law, uh, but that's the world's approach to it. The gospel grants forgiveness for sins. Of course, we know, and they don't seem to know, upon repentance, it grants repentance, uh, forgiveness, whereupon the Holy Spirit in conflict with our sinful nature changes the heart so that we do not want to do what is wrong. The conscious is sensitized uh, virtue becomes voluntary. And brethren, that part is good. The conscience is sensitized. As you feed on this word, as I have urged you to do probably hundreds of times over the last few years, feed on Christ. Feed on Christ. Just drink into this word and feed on it. Think about it. Internalize it then your conscience becomes sensitized to what God really wants you to do. And so that's a very important thing. Uh, when dealing with the moral problem of lust, the Christian approach is to cultivate the inner disciplines of self-control and spiritual strength to resist temptation. The Muslim approach, that's interesting to think about it from this point of view, very helpful. The Muslim approach is to swathe women in yards of cloth so that it is impossible for a man to see the woman's body. You see, that keeps him from lusting, supposedly. Back during the uh, uh, early days of so-called Christianity, which was not Christianity, but they had the pillar saints in the early group that developed into the what we call the Catholic Church today. And the pillar saints lived up on 
big stone pillars, literally. It's 20, 30, 40 feet up in the air. And they would be up there and meditate and this and that. Some of them go blind looking at the sun. And they would have food brought up and their own human waste sent down in buckets. And they were supposedly more holy because they were up just up there doing nothing. And uh, they couldn't lust after a woman, supposedly, because she was down here and they didn't get, get near her. So that made it pretty good, right? Well, that's ridiculous. Paul shows over and over, that's not right. That's not the way to develop character. We're to get in the arena of human life, helping and serving one another, men and women. And if we accidentally see some unclothed or partly unclothed woman, which you can't help doing once in a while, even flipping the dial on TV or flipping through some magazine or whatever, your conscience... Your Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, I should say, in you, helps you say, okay, there's a human body. This is the body of a human female. Half the people of the six billion people on this planet are human females. You know, that's nice. Women's bodies are pretty, but don't get excited about it. You don't have to lust about it. You can get excited about your own sweetheart, your own wife in a right way and want to have a sweetheart, want to have a mate, want to have children, want to have a home. Think of it in that way. But that's the way you ought to be doing. Teach your mind to think that way, not to swathe the women's bodies in yards of cloth. In Islam, morality is forced from the outside. In Christianity, morality comes within the individual. And again, this is only partly true. They're not wording exactly right because God has not called them yet, but they're sincere. In true Christianity, it's not morality. It is true spirituality. It does not come from inside us in that sense. It comes from Galatians 2.20. Christ lives in me. You see, that's where it comes from. It comes from Christ living His life in you. And if Christ is living His life in you through the Holy Spirit, then that flows right out and that does sensitize your conscience. That does deeply affect everything that you think, everything that you say, everything that you do. And I want all of you folks to stay in the church. I want all of you folks to be in God's kingdom and God's family forever and bear God's name. But to do that, folks, you've got to make it internal. It's got to come from the inside. You can't say, well, I'm just here and here's young Deborah here. Well, she says, well, my parents are here and I've got to be good because they're watching me. Well, uh, they're probably watching her as I would too if I had a teenage girl. But on the other hand, the big thing is, as she grows up, is to make it from the inside that she believes the truth, she knows the truth, and she has Christ living within her. And if her parents move to Swaziland or something, which I don't think they're likely to do, but she's still going to try to live God's way, you see, because it's built within her, not because she grew up in the church. We found hundreds of young people who came to Ambassador College just came because their parents sent them or they wanted to have plenty of girls to date, plenty of boys to date, and so they didn't internalize it. Some of them came to college. You might wonder why many dropped away because they came for those reasons and then when the college closed or they graduated or the church split up, they're gone. They're out of here. It was never internalized in them in the first place. It was daddy and mama's religion, you see, and they never internalized that in their own heart and mind because when they got to be a sophomore or a junior in Ambassador College, if they weren't baptized, well, you know, you're not baptized and, and something must be wrong with you. And the, the whole pressure was to get baptized, get baptized, join the club. It wasn't a club. I explained that to them in freshman Bible class. Maybe you've heard me use that expression, I suppose. I don't know. I used to say those things. It wasn't a club. But no matter what I said, a lot of them thought it was a club. They sensed that the peer pressure was then good in a sense, but they just did it you see, to go to grade 13, you know, and however you want to express that, to join the club. 
so they're not with us anymore. But you're not in Ambassador College. You're in a little tiny group of God's people meeting in a hired hall with no great prestige before the world, whatever. All of you know that, but think about it. And the only reason you're here or should be here is because you want to learn the truth of God out of this book and because you want to live the truth of God out of this book and because you want to be in the kingdom of God, God's kingdom, God's enlarged family and live forever with Christ and with God the Father in their kingdom, which is described in this book. That should be your reason for being here. So if we move to another hall, no big deal. If we have to close the office and move somewhere else, you're not all going to fall away. You're going to keep going on with this truth. We will hope to be at a place of safety. But as I've explained, it might not be Petra. It might be somewhere else too. Anyway, we want to sincerely do the truth, live the truth, and not just have outward conformity kind of enforced by peer pressure. There's not much peer pressure around here because there's a small, you know, in this little church. Some people in the office, though, might get a job and want to do good for their job. Don't do that. Make it internal. Prove it. Get on one side or the other. As Joshua said, if God be God, serve him. And so on. As for me and my father's house, we will serve the eternal, Joshua said. And you want to have that attitude about it. Turn to Romans 5, brethren. Romans chapter 5 now. And I'm going to begin reading in verse uh, 29. Romans 5. And uh, in verse 29, Paul is winding up a section here about uh, being justified by grace. And he says in verse, uh, 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 I'm sorry, verse 20, not 29, he says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, uh, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Yes, God's grace brings forgiveness from sin. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that means we're all under grace and now we can go do what we want to. Of course, that's what so many of the other people read into this, the worldly people. doesn't say that, but you got to keep reading. Men divided these books into chapters, as you know. Just keep reading. What shall we say then? Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we continue in sin? What is sin? 1 John 3, verse 4, sin is the transgression of the law. Shall we continue in lawlessness? That's the best way to translate it because that's what it means. Shall we continue breaking God's Sabbath? Shall we continue divorcing and remarrying for almost any reason that's convenient, which is sin in God's sight? Shall we continue fighting or killing or going to war? Shall we continue coveting and lusting for material things in a wrong way and so on? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So there's lots of grace. God forbid. Or as he says in the New King James, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer therein? If you died to sin in your conversion, how can you go back and be living in it? And then he explains what he means. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were baptized, buried symbolically into the very death of Christ to take part of death in that way so our sins can be forgiven because the wages of sin is death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. How are we to walk? We're to walk a different way. A different way. A different way of life. 
And brethren, it isn't just keeping Saturday instead of Sunday. We've got to understand that. I've said that so often because so many people used to sort of have that attitude. I just, I learned to keep the Sabbath and I come to the holy days and I send my tithes to Brother Armstrong so I'll be in the kingdom. This was their attitude. No, that's not it. Christ has got to be living his life in you 24 hours a day overall. (laughs) You'll sin some, but you get up and repent and go right back and do better the next time as you grow in grace and in knowledge. But it's not just a matter of keeping Saturday instead of Sunday. And when you keep God's Sabbath, there ought to be a deep, profound realization that this wonderful law of God, one of the big ten, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And it points then later in the commandment itself to God created, for God created the heavens and the earth in seven days and so on. It points to the true God. And every people and every church and every group that's ever got away from God's Sabbath gets off into worshiping a false god. And there's no exception. The Sabbath is a sign. And God tells us that. That identifies the true God. And if people don't have that wonderful Sabbath sign reminding them that this is God's day. This is holy time. This points to my Creator. This points to the one who gives me life and breath. Then they go off the track. They just do. So we're to bury the old self in baptism and walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, we have buried our old selves, certain that we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. We will be resurrected at the last trump. We will come up to join Christ in the kingdom of God. Knowing this, that our old man, and I think the way to put this to understand is our old selfish self. That's what he's talking about. Our old selfish self was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. That's what we are. We're slaves of sin as long as we do those things. He says over in verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? I'm reading from the New King James. You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether uh, sin to death or obedience to righteousness. And he says down in verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. That's why the unconverted King James, New King James translators have it here. It's interesting, they understand the Greek word. You presented yourselves as slaves, saying, I'll I'll go along, and pretty soon Satan gets control of you, and you become a slave of sin. That's the way you live, that's the way you think. Does that mean you're out, you're killing someone every night? No, that's a problem. A lot of people think, well, these people are not slaves of sin, they're generally nice people, and on the surface they're okay, but of course they are cut off from the true God. Until they repent, they're not going to be in the first resurrection. We hope we can help them get in the first resurrection if we can reach as many of them as possible. But he says, as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now, he tells us, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. We're to be like God. Be ye holy, for I am holy, God tells us. Back in 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. That's a very, very important principle. So you become a slave of sin. You become a slave of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness if you don't watch it very, very carefully. And if you have not really buried yourself. 
And brethren, each one of us has got to make sure that we have done that. And maybe we need to go back and rebury ourselves, make a second covenant. Some go through the marriage ceremony again in a human sense. I don't think they need to at all. But I'm just saying that's what people do. But each of us needs to go back every now and then and rededicate our life to God. And make that covenant we made with God at baptism absolute. Absolute. When you were baptized, you didn't understand as much as you do now. I didn't either. But when we were baptized, ideally, we should have come to prove that there was one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior and High Priest at His right hand, and that this book was inspired by them, and that we were to surrender to them, to live by every word of God, and we should have repented of breaking God's holy, sacred, spiritual law. Not moral law. Moral implies what society accepts. A spiritual law, the law of God. We should have fervently repented and buried the old self and let the old self die and say, God, I'm giving my life to you unreservedly. I mean it. I made a covenant with our Creator to give our lives to God through Jesus Christ. That should have been our covenant. For we really repented of the selfishness and vanity and lust and greed that we had been in before and then gave our lives to God, surrendered to God unconditionally to have the Christ of the Bible live His life in us. This is what God wants us to do, brethren. This is what God wants every one of you to do and and wants me. We've got to keep rededicating. We've got to keep making it deeper. We've got to make sure that it's inside out, that we're not just conforming because now we're in this church for a while. Pretty soon we might be over here, over there. Now we better prove it to ourselves and be in the right place at the right time for the right reason. Have you done that? Many of you probably have, but some of you probably have not. Turn to 2 Corinthians 13. 2 Corinthians now, brethren, and turn, if you would, to chapter 13. 2 Corinthians 13. We usually start reading down the line. I'm going to start reading in verse 4 here. For though he was crucified in weakness, speaking of Christ, yet he lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in Him, but we shall live with Him by the power of God toward you. God's Spirit is a Spirit of power. And Christ guided Paul to have power to preach to them, to correct them, to exhort them strongly and work with them for their good. Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Paul challenges them. We often give this scripture at Passover time, but that's not the only time. Paul, frankly, was not writing this particular book at Passover time. He wrote 1 Corinthians then, but not 2 Corinthians. Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? Christ must be in you. Christ must be in me or we're not going to make it. We don't want to be here just to join the club or because it's convenient. There is a real God and God has a real church on this earth and this happens to be it in spite of our human weaknesses. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Paul writes, the Corinthians, you see, were picking at Paul and putting him down. And you read that through this whole book, 2 Corinthians, is mainly Paul's defense against these false preachers. Now, people will put me down from time to time, and they'll do it a lot more later when the world starts hating us. And some in the church say, probably, well, you know, I don't like old Meredith as much because of this or that or something else. Well, I don't either. 
Whenever I see my face in the mirror, I think, wow, I better repent. <laughs> you know, I've got many things wrong. But you don't have to have a hero feeling toward me or toward Mr. Ames or Mr. Bryce or Mr. Bardot or Mr. Davis or anyone else as a minister to follow Christ. We present to you Jesus Christ to the Bible. He is the one you're to follow, the love. He's the hero. None of us can be a hero. None of us are superstars in that way in our looks, our personality, anything we have. We're not. But Christ is. And you've got to really have that deeply imbued into your mind. He says, I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. You guys don't think very much of me on occasion, Paul said, but I hope you'll at least look on Christ. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Paul said, I'm willing to die for you. I want you to be in God's kingdom. Please wake up. And this also we pray that you may be made complete. Yes, each of you needs to be brought to the measure of the fullness of Christ and have Christ fully living in you. And if we can help you in any way, we need to do that. We ministers don't do that perfectly. But being inspired by this article I read and certain other things have happened recently, I thought, well, we've really got to think that through. We've got to internalize these things. And I hope all of you will grasp that and begin to work at that very, very much. Turn back to chapter 10. This is a scripture I read recently again, but let's go back here. It's very important. It ties in today again. First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 10 again. Second Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 3. Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, yes, we're still human, we ministers, we do not war according to the flesh. Of course, he's not talking here just about the ministry, but about everyone. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We have mighty weapons to do what? Casting down arguments and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. People say, well, here's the way I look at it, you know. Well, God is not interested in the way I look at it, frankly, as a human, or the way you look at it. But if we can prove what we believe out of the Bible, that is very important. That is very important. People that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God were to be bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So there it is, brethren. You and I are to try with God's help, with Christ in us, to bring every thought into captivity to Christ. To ask Him in our prayers day by day, please help me to think the way you think, O God. Please send Jesus in me through the Spirit to guide my thoughts, to guide my actions, to guide my mind, to guide my words, to guide my conversation. And we're to think that when strive honestly and deeply to do that so that we reflect Jesus Christ from the inside out, not just conforming to the group, but we reflect Christ more and more from the inside out. Now turn to 1 John, if you would, brethren. 1 John chapter 2. And I'm going to begin reading here in verse 15. Paul, I mean John writes, this elderly apostle, right at the end of the apostolic age, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And yet, brethren, many of us do love the world too much in God's church. And I'm not just preaching to you, brethren, here, but to you, brethren, around the world. And we hope this will help the brethren down in Tasmania and New Zealand, and Australia, and the Philippines, and wherever they may be. But many of us 
And most of us in the Western world are very greatly affected, of course, by the world. So many material things. Many material things. And we've got to deeply understand that. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. Again, we've got to deeply understand that. When he talks about the world here, he's talking about the cosmos, not the beautiful earth or the mountains and the valleys and the rivers, but the society. My mother used to take Cosmopolitan magazine, and I used to read it as a teenage boy. I, we didn't have a lot of reading material, but we had Saturday Evening Post and Ladies Home Journal and, uh, and Cosmopolitan she'd take sometimes. And Cosmopolitan nowadays is really not fit to read most of the time. Uh, you know, I better not even go into the headlines. They even seem kind of out of place to even read the headlines till you recite them about sex and all this and that they have every single uh, month. If you look at them on a checkout stand, you know, it's getting to be that way. But back then, I'm talking about 19, uh, uh, 1939, 1943, 1948. Believe me, it was quite different. Cosmopolitan, that is of this world, this society. So the, this world, this, this cosmos has all this vanity. Uh, keep up with the Joneses. And uh, have you, you deserve this. You know, they tell you in these ads, you need this and you deserve this. And now you can have this. More material things. And you feel more important often if you have more material things. I've noticed that people that tend to get more money, they often feel more important. Somehow that makes them smarter because they have more material things. It doesn't make them any smarter. Some of the dumbest people in the world win the jackpot at Reno or Las Vegas on occasion. <laughs> then they, does that make them any smarter the next day? Of course not. doesn't make them one bit smarter or better. It just means they have more material wealth which can corrupt them and hurt them if they don't use it the right way. But all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, thinking about these things, and the pride of life, I know back even in the headquarters in Pasadena, uh, there was a time there for several years that the ministry generally sat up in the front left corner. Mr. Pyle will remember that and Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Bardot and others. And they often, some of the minister's wives would strut around, well, I've got a such and such dress and how is your dress today? And they would brag about each other's uh, expensive designer suits and designer dresses and, and so on and stand around and, you know, this kind of thing. Well, that made me ill. I wasn't perfect in that, but that was not my problem. I have many other problems. My wife can write a whole book on that someday. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we, you know, we used to feel sorry for those people. Most of those people are not with us. And in fact, most of those people, trying to go down the line of my mind on each one, most of those people are not with any church of God today or, or certainly not in the church that's doing God's work. But they tended to stand around with each other and not get out and circulate around. I want to take different ones, just young men and everybody, and get acquainted with everybody. I don't do that perfectly, but try to spread it around. And, uh, and uh, different ministers I go out with and different brethren, different times. Sometimes with the ministers, sometimes not. And all of us should try to reach out to more of you even more than we do and not be just with the important people all the time. It's not wrong to have a few friends you spend a little more time with than others. I tend to spend a little more time, I've told the ministers, with Mr. and Mrs. Ames, not because Mr. Ames is so handsome. He's not. If he were here, I would, <laughs> if he were here, I would persecute him. No, he's nice looking, but you know what I mean. I don't do it for that reason. But my little sister, 
enjoys being with her big brother. Our mutual sister, Patty, died, you know, a year or two ago. And she's, I'm the only one she has left. And, and she's the only one I have left in the family. Originally, we grew up together. So we spend a little bit more time. And God is not against the family. He wants you to spend a little more time with your family. But at any rate, we can't do that every week with them. We've got to spread it around. All of us have got to spread it around. Love everyone in God's church and not just with the important people. You know, the important people. That's a bunch of baloney. Don't spend all of your time with the important people. I remember in Imperial School, Elizabeth will remember this. I think she's trying to be a good girl. Yeah, she's helping take care of a baby back there. But uh, anyway, uh, she and uh, Mike, I think it was, maybe Jim, my older children came up from Imperial School one time and they talked. I forgot the term was important or the good people or something. And they used this term and I really jumped on them and said, they're not the good people and the bad people because they, they meant the children of the ministers and big executives were the in crowd. And boy, my wife and I both just jumped right down their throat. And I said, it's not that way. You'd be friends with everybody. And boy, we went after them with hammer and tongs. And, uh, and uh, they, they, they've always learned to associate with everybody pretty much. And I'm glad they do. And uh, But anyway, uh, we don't want that attitude. That could easily start even in God's church. You know, the in crowd, the good people, baloney. The ones that are the good people are those that have Jesus Christ living His life in them. And then they will be loving all kinds of different people and they will spend a little more time with their close personal friends and their family, but they will make sure they try to get around to everybody and make themselves available as well. The pride of life all this stuff is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So we've got to do the will of God, again, from the heart. Internalize it, because we will have Jesus Christ living within us. That's the only way we'll do it, brethren. Are you being changed in that way? I hope all of you are. Again, remember this little motto that I've given you two or three times. The thoughts which dominate your mind are what you value most. If you young men are thinking about sports and girls and travel and girls and cars and girls, get rid of some of those girls. <laughs> Think about something else once in a while. And get your mind on the kingdom of God a little bit more. And you older men, quit thinking about how important you are, or how much money you're making, or whatever it is. It's, it becomes your God. Each of us has to spread it around and have your thoughts. Again, not outwardly, but the things you're really concerned with. Do you have uh, some nice things and you need to take care of them? Yes, that's all right. But in balance. Don't make that the main thing you're thinking about. The main thing you're thinking about is how can I better reflect Jesus Christ? How can I be a better bond slave of Jesus Christ? How can I better serve others? How can we better get out the work of God all over this world with all of our hearts? The thoughts which dominate your mind are what you value most. Let's turn to chapter 3 now. 1 John 3 and verse 16. 1 John, we're here. Chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love because He laid down His life for us. And we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. Each of us should try to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John 3, 16. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brethren in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? 
We ought to love our brethren, help them when they're in need, give them some food, have them stay with us, give them some money, encourage them, but don't just encourage them. As the Bible says, don't say, well, I'll pray for you, brother, have a good day, and he wanders off and doesn't have any place to stay or anything to eat. Don't help him if you can. It doesn't say you've got to give vast amounts of your money to the Red Cross or some organization that's helping people in Ethiopia or Thailand or Bangladesh. That's not wrong to do that for worldly people. But frankly, most of those people over there are cut off from God. They're not your immediate neighbor. You can't really help them anyway when you get down to it because the government and, and the good do-good do societies have poured billions and countless hundreds of billions of dollars into their societies and they are never going to be really helped unless they learn the way of God. So the best way we can help them is to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, God's way of life to them, and then He will begin to bless them, you see. But your immediate neighbor... Jesus never went down to Africa. He went to Africa as a little boy down into Egypt, but you never find one single time when he went down to Africa to just help people starving down there. He didn't go over into Arabia to find some people starving over there. He didn't go up into the Caucasus in Russia where there were people up there probably in trouble and try to find some starving people up there. He didn't do that. He was called to teach the truth and he helped those who were right nearby, his immediate neighbor, you see. So you do need to do that. Help each other in the church and help others around. And that's and then the big thing to help others with all over the world is to teach the gospel of the kingdom of God in every way we possibly can. That is the pearl of great price. My little children, let us not love in word or in deed, but in, in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let's really love though and have our love, that love be our motivation that we do love others. We do want to help them the best way we can. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Now, if we so live, not perfectly, but we can say to God in our own heart, Father, I've tried, I've been trying to serve you and walk with you and keep your commandments and yield to let Christ live His life in me. And you have reasonable confidence in that. And if our heart does not condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. But if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Verse 22, And whatever we ask, you see, with that confidence that we have been walking with God, we have been letting Christ live in us, whatever we ask then in prayer, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments, plural, all of them, and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. None of us do that perfectly. But if that's our way of life, the more we do that, the more thoroughly we walk with God, the more we know and know that we know that our heart is right, then we can lift up our hands, holy hands to God. Paul says holy hands, you know, on one occasion, without wrath and doubting, and say, Father, I have tried to serve you with my whole life. Please grant me this, and the more faith you will have. But you know, guilt is a great destroyer of faith. Guilt can destroy your faith as quick as anything. And if you are compromising, you're compromising and drinking too much. You're compromising and lying a little here and there. You're compromising and withholding your tithes or offerings from God. You're compromising and watering down, keeping the holy days. Or you're compromising on some other thing. Inside you hate other people. You're resentful. And you don't want to admit it for a while and yet inside you know better. You're compromising and lusting after someone else's wife. 
you're compromising. And whatever way you compromise in, that's going to hurt your faith. It just is. The thing is to give your life to God wholly, unconditionally, not water things down, but to ask God to clean you up from the inside out so that you reflect Jesus Christ as fully as you possibly can. So that's a wonderful scripture though. Whatever we ask, we've received because we keep His commandments and do those things, all these things that are pleasing in His sight. That's the walking with God. That's what it's called. And this is His commandment that we should believe on the name that is the authority, everything about Jesus Christ and love one another as He gave His commandment. Now He who keeps His commandments, plural again, abides in Him, and He in Him, God will live inside of us through the Holy Spirit. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He's given us. We sense and see by experience that we have that extra help. We have that extra understanding we never could have had before. It's come through God's Spirit within us, and that can be very encouraging. So we must walk that way, yield that way, think that way. Now, brethren, let's turn to Ezekiel 36, if you would. Turn back to the book of Ezekiel, and I'm going to turn back here to chapter 36. This is talking about the regathering of our peoples. Ezekiel 36, and beginning in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, and brethren, this is a prophecy of what's going to happen just in a few years from now, another, whatever it is, 8 to 15 years probably. Thus says the eternal God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel. He's not talking about the Jews. He's talking about the whole house of Israel. As you read this scripture carefully, this whole book, you'll see that. He says house of Judah sometime. Here he's talking about all 12 tribes. He says, I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. What do you mean? Well, that's why the French, even before this latest flap, haven't wanted American television. Because we have so much profanity and filth that we export over there in violence. And they don't like all that, some of the European nations. They're rightly going to look on us as degenerate people, exporting the pornography and the rotten stuff that we do. And we say we're a Christian nation. And the nation shall know that I am the eternal God when I'm hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations. You see where we will have been scattered in national slavery. The great tribulation, the greatest slavery in human history. Hundreds of millions of people taken into slavery. Gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. That will be first of all the land of Israel. And brethren, as you know, as time goes on, more of God's people will probably come back again to the British Isles, to the United States, to Canada, to Australia, New Zealand, the temperate parts of the earth that God gave Israel from the beginning. But first, they'll be gathered to the Middle East. And as you read, the original bounds of Israel were to be all the way from the Euphrates the Euphrates River and Babylon to the Mediterranean and from way up in northern Lebanon clear down into the Arabian Peninsula. A lot bigger than it is today. That was the land God gave Abraham. That's the land that's going to, the desert is going to bloom like the rose and he'll bring some of our descendants and children's children and other people we've known and loved that lived through the tribulation back to that area first and teach them. And we will be there under Christ to help teach them God's ways as kings and priests. This is the way. Walk in it. And then they, in turn, can begin to teach the Gentile nations all over till finally the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the ocean beds are filled with water. 
I'll take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And that's the whole thing we've got to have, brethren. A new heart. It's got to come from the heart. We've got to sincerely want to walk God's ways. Not that we're doing it by rote. Say, well, you've got to do this or that in order to stay in the church. You know, or Mr. Meredith is watching or Mr. Davis is watching. That has nothing to do with it. Do it because Christ is living in you and you sincerely want to please your heavenly Father. You sincerely want to be like God and you ask God to come into you. You ask God to take your life. You ask God to send Jesus to live your life for you and then it flows right out from you in a natural way, living by every word of God to the degree that you do and improve in that year by year as you grow in grace and in knowledge. And I will give you a new heart, a whole new attitude, a new spirit within you, God's Holy Spirit. I will take the heart of stone where people just argue against God. Well, here's the way I look at it. They say, I'll take that heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. God's statutes include, of course, tithing and the holy days. And we're going to keep all of God's statutes some of them in the spirit, not all of them in the letter, but they're all going to be kept. And you shall keep my judgments and do them a whole way of life based on God's laws. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. That's going to happen, and that's a wonderful time that we have to look forward to. All our friends and neighbors who live on will come up and be brought back, and then later, of course, great white throne judgment, they'll be brought up from the dead. And given that same opportunity to know God's ways and to have Christ's character put within them through the Holy Spirit. Though this must happen to us now. This has got to happen to us now though, brethren. If we want to be in the first resurrection, if we want to be the teachers, if you and I want to be the kings and priests helping these people, then we've got to say, clean us up now. Help us now to bring every thought into captivity to Christ. Help us now to reflect Christ in everything we think and say and do. Help us, Father, to internalize your whole way of life now. This is what God wants us to do. And again, the only way to do that fully, as I've said before, and I don't want to beat you over the head with it, but Galatians (laughs) 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's the only way you'll do it. Christ must live His life in you through the Holy Spirit. Turn to Philippians now, if you would. Philippians, and I want to have you focus on this here at the end. He says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. You see, Paul was a good southerner. You notice that? <laughs> making request for you all. <laughs> uh, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is not talking about the fact that Mr. Armstrong or I or anyone else will live and have to finish the work. That's not what it's talking about. 
is talk, as, as some used to misunderstand that, is talking about each of us, every one of you individually. Once God has called you to have your chance now, you see, He's got to keep working with you, fashioning and molding you, rebuking and chastening you, yes, bringing you through trials to help you to be humble, to help you to be willing to listen, to help you wake up, but working with you to become His Son. Now, He will not quit. So He's going to give you your chance now and He will complete it until the day of Christ. So that's an important thing. We have that confidence. God will keep on working with us and He will never leave us nor forsake us. And so then Paul said back in chapter 3, Philippians 3 and verse uh, 12, not that I have already attained. Paul said, I haven't got it made yet or I'm already perfected, but I press on. And brethren, we do need to do this. Be zealous about it. Do your part with zeal. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. That I can be a full son of God to reflect Christ in everything I do and I can be a king and a priest in the coming government of God. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I don't think I've already got it made. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and brethren, some of you sometimes are burdened down by past sins. You think, well, I just can't be forgiven and I've got this thing hanging on me and I can't quite overcome. Which big problem is too big for Christ? You know that. There's nothing too big for Christ. Nothing is impossible with God. Christ can help you overcome. And Christ in you will help stamp out any wrong thing. And Christ's blood will forgive any past sin as long as you sincerely repent and really do move ahead with your whole heart. Forgetting those things which are behind, reaching toward those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we need to press toward that goal. You can't drift toward that goal. You've got to press toward that goal. Go all out. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, were to have the mind of Christ. We're to let every thought be brought into captivity to Christ. And so we're to have this approach, this mind, to clean up our mind, to clean up our attitude, to clean up our heart, to clean up the deepest motivations inside of us to where we sincerely, from the depths of our being, are thinking more and more like Christ, wanting what God wants, wanting what Christ wants, even if that seems to be against what we want on occasion. Sincerely wanting that. <clears throat> That's so important. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. So have the mind of Christ and press toward the kingdom of God, forgetting those that are things that are behind. Don't let that be burdening you. But brethren, know that Christ can live His life in you with greater and greater power and literally change you. Literally change you. You will yield to Him and surrender to Him from the inside out. So that no matter what happens to any one of us, no matter whether the church leaves next week, as I was kidding, or anything else happens, it won't shake you. You will know that God is there, Christ is there, His church is there. This is the truth. And you will walk with that living Jesus Christ now and forever.